Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. What's he saying? We're not even friends. We're just best friends. Just lifelong acquaintances. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Classical Etc., before we get started, Tanya, we are rolling. You have a very not classical, etc. book at the table, and I need you to explain yourself. I can't believe you think this is not classical. It doesn't have any of the hallmarks. Okay, so I got it. I got this as a gift in the mail the other day, my football book, and I thought, well, this is odd. And then I thought, well, it's Gail Gibbons, and we have a lot of Gail Gibbons books, so maybe somebody just thought that I might want to use this one in the <laughs> curriculum. And I'm thinking, no. <laughs> But then it came with this very nice note from Elizabeth Colley uh, from Highlands Latin mm-hmm. Anderson. Mm-hmm. And she says, Dear Tanya, Chris thought, that's her husband, yeah. Chris thought this little book would give you a crash course in football terminology mm-hmm. so that you could better understand Shane's analogies on classical, etc. So I have it here. It's this one of her helpful. son's favorite books. And it actually has what a huddle is. That's good. Yes. Yeah, so, former episode but this, you d- episode, this podcast, I said the word huddle. Yes, you did. In a huddle, a team groups together to get instructions from the quarterback, team captain, or coach. So, see, I said what sport? Oh, there's some vocabulary. But it's football. Football so, is the huddle so have sport. You, have you read the the book front to back? No, but I'm up to a scrimmage. So I would like you all to use the word scrimmage in this podcast. And then I'm going to tell you what it is. Before the end. I didn't know what a scrimmage was. It's an actual place where the ball rests on the field. Oh, novel. I've learned a lot. I'm working my way through it. Wow. So thank you, Chris Colley. Scrimmage line. Yeah, scrimmage. It's a line line of scrimmage. Hang on. Let me tell you. Let me look in the middle. I'm going to tell you. It's a line of scrimmage. Okay. Okay. That makes me feel better. Yes. The teams line up at the line of scrimmage and the quarterback yells, ready, set, hut. (laughs) No. Scrimmage is when two teams play like a fake game against each other. Yeah, that's what I was going to do. But she just said scrimmage. This is nice alliteration. Do they really say hut, hut, hike every time? No, not every time. Okay. But, but anyway, thank you, Chris. I'm very thankful to have this gift, which I will be using. So you all just throw that terminology out there. This probably starts where you need it to. It does. It totally does. And and on the topic of books, um, I think we need to make our listeners aware that after our, our public shaming of Shane, he has begun to read or he has picked up some fiction. Some more fiction. As before you continue two, 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 shaming, I think two, two <laughs> books of fiction. Let me introduce our topic for today. <laughs> One of the my favorite fictional books is actually The Iliad. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode. Wait, that's fictional? That is a very the good question. That is a very good question. You just blumped it into a category. I guess about we can come our back episode to it. is that we have to make do with Mitchell. Notice that in the first few minutes. So that's where we're headed. But back to the fact that I <laughs> frequently read fiction. I recently picked up a book called Jack glass, which is literary fiction, sci-fi. And I'm really enjoying it guys. I'm like 200 wait, pages. Wait, in. No, but there's another book that you committed to. We. Oh, did you commit to Tolkien? No, no. not Tolkien. Uh, oh, oh, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, the, uh, 
Yeah, the, horses, the books that haven't come Prince in yet. Caspian. Yeah, Prince Caspian. Yeah, yeah which that's, I read before. That's what I, I was again. really excited oh, okay, about. Okay. Yeah. Look at all the fiction I read. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give you a chance to let our audience know that you read Thank a lot you. of fiction. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, and uh, you said that you're reading some other fiction right now as well. I am. An I'm, epic well, of sorts. An epic of yeah. sorts. A very, a very enjoyable epic. Don Quixote. So I, I think I mentioned Monsignor Quixote by Graham Greene. I decided I was going to go um, pick up the the original uh, Don Quixote, which was actually a relative of mine. He's a he's been driving trucks and he decided he was going to start listening to the classics because he realized his mm. library has them on audiobook and he can just For listen free, to them. Yeah. And he was listening to Don Quixote. <clears throat> he came and visited with his family and his kids were, were like listening to it in the car with him on his trip to our house. And the kids were loving it. And once I started reading, it, I was like, Oh yeah, I totally it's see how kids fun, love isn't this. It's it? very fun. I haven't read it. I feel like if, Somebody is intimidated by a classic like the Iliad. Then Odyssey. that would be a good. It's a good start. I mean, it's a long book. It's a forty-hour audio book, but they're, they're fun, episodic, mm. you know, yeah. adventures. Would you say that it has the kind of formative, like symbols and allusions for Spanish people that some of the English epics that we're familiar with have, or is it is it a, a novel of its own kind? Not in that line. I. I would like to say yes, but I can't say yes until I finished it. Okay. So check back with me. Right. <laughs> this long so in like a couple of years yes. or. No, no, I'm already, <laughs> I started listening to it on Saturday while I was doing farm work and I'm already like six hours in. Okay. So it's 40 <laughs> out hours. of 40. <laughs> I feel like I'm really far into it. Uh, but also as I've been listening to it, I've realized because I'm doing, I'm doing things while I'm listening that I'm missing stuff. Like I can right. already tell that there's so much in it that while I'm enjoying it, I know I'm missing stuff. You and really need a hard copy that you can just kind of go back and skim through. I do. After you've yeah. listened. And, and Anna Crenna was the same way. Like I listened sure. to it and I was like, I need to go back and do that again. Right. Because that the second time you're going to get so much more out of it. Mitch, have you read uh, any of the epics and do you have a preference among them? Oh, actually I got Paul. Uh, something that I, a book that I think participates in the epics. Okay. So, uh, it's a relatively newer book, uh, written by an Icelandic author. Um, it's called independent people. Now the last, um, Nordic book that you had me read that you were just obsessed with was a book called Norwegian wood. Oh, I read that book. Yes. It was so good. Yeah, it was so good. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It was not good. Uh, this, is the, this is by far, I mean, I want to get back to Norwegian Wood because- Is it, it is, fiction? It, no, no, it's about wood stoves. No. Uh, anybody yeah. who wants to do anything with with cutting, splitting, he, seasoning wood, seasoning wood, using wood in a yeah, fireplace. Absolutely. It is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I mean, I mean, just to give you an example, there are, there are old people in Northern Wisconsin who keep cat litter in the back of their of the back of their car. And that's the weirdest thing. Why would you keep cat litter in the back of their yard? Well, there's the old people in Northern Wisconsin. They know the secret that cat litter is better than sand when it comes to getting out of ice. That's what I was going to say. That's right. Because of the so ice. There are secrets that the old people in Northern Norway know. <laughs> I don't know what about, this has to do with wood. how to season yeah, wood yeah, and cut right. it and stack it. The connection. I you know, see that. So yeah. there's no connection. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> this book that I got, Paul, that I read uh, is essentially the cross between um, the, the classical epics and Greek drama 
with the old sagas, uh, uh, sort of Icelandic sagas. It's this perfect sort of union of all of those things. The author is clearly steeped in the classical tradition, but it's set in Iceland. Um, so is this the Norse gods? Well, yeah, the Icelandic sagas. Yeah, yeah. Well, be. well, referencing those. I mean, it's it's a. So it's going to be it Freya and no, Thor. No, it doesn't include any of that. Right, oh. it's, right. It's, it's in it's, the style of those right. Norse sagas. Yeah, it's um, evocative of uh, yeah. in the themes and and it's also it's also I mean again participating in Greek tragedy because ultimately it's a it's a tragedy. But so. I haven't read a word of this book. I don't want to spoil it. For it ball. made it yeah. from my shelf to next to my chair. Oh, that's so great. it should be. Coming it's on up the soon. way. It's on, it's the, on way. the way. Independent people, write it down. Yeah, it's really good. Tanya, are you a fan of the epics? Yes, I do like them. Okay. Um, did you read the Iliad and the Odyssey when you were like you were a literature major in college? Did you read them then, or did you read them later? Or both? I did. I read. <clears throat> sorry, I read. <clears throat> in my in my throat. Um, I read the Iliad and the Odyssey in college. This is back when they had you read in college? Yes. Okay. And then I'd read them again when my oldest son was going through because I felt like I needed a refresher. And at that point, I read Lattimore, I think, Mm. because that's what he was reading Mm. at the time. I haven't read Butler. Yeah. And you're talking about the translation. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. The translations, but I've read them a couple of times. What I've not read is the Aeneid. I've read the Aeneid for boys and girls because I edited the one we sell. But so I know the story, but I haven't actually read it, which is I really need to do. Sure. So have you read them all? I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I and who's read, the translator of the one you read? I've read Fitzgerald twice for Iliad and Odyssey. I think I read Fitzgerald once for the Odyssey. Yeah, I've read Butler for Iliad and Odyssey once, and then for the Aeneid, I've read the uh, Dry- Dryden. Dryden. Mm-hmm. Um, so today's episode is on the epics, and the epics are something that Emma Warrior Press we're kind of we're, we're fixated on right now. There is a new show that we're putting out called Classics Unraveled, and we're letting John Christensen be John Christensen, and basically <laughs> in front of a mic, <laughs> the classics be as entertaining and interesting as they are and he's bringing them to life. And so have you watched the new one? I did. And I really liked so it. So did, is this to set up his, it's I mean, are you, are you advertising it. for John? No, I would never do that. <laughs> I would only allow John to advertise for me. But <laughs> I do think everyone should watch this video. He made, he just brought it to life. He connected it with this movie mm-hmm. called Dunkirk, which I don't know if yes. you guys have seen it, but it's really great. Yes. And I never would have thought out of all the movies that have been filmed in the past hundred years mm-hmm. that, Dunkirk would be the one he would choose. But after he had explained all the things that make up an epic, I thought it's, it is perfect. Yeah, it was great. So I thought in our conversation though, we could come down to earth a little bit more in terms of the things that we talk about are usually schools, homeschool families, you wrestling with these books and the, and the way that we've ordered them on our curriculum. And so I brought down actually our Odyssey text and then the Odyssey guides that we have with them that our students uh, cover in the seventh or eighth grade. And the question that I think I want to start with Tanya is that's pretty young for these, these books for a lot of reasons. I mean, the Iliad is a fairly violent book. There is a lot, it's, it's difficult English, the Samuel Butler translation. Why do we decide to put it there so early? And what's the benefit of making sure you prioritize these books in your curriculum? 
Well, it turns out that I, and I've told this story many times, but I was very skeptical that my seventh grader would be able to read this and glean anything at all from it. And I was angry about it that Cheryl was asking him to do that. I felt like it was a total waste of time, but it turned out that he was totally able to do it, loved it. It became his favorite class, and they were reading a poetry translator. They were reading a translation in poetry, and parents complained because, like me, they were like, no way, are these kids ready to do this? And so they brought, they gave them a prose a prose translation, which I don't think was Butler at that point, at that time. It was the one published by Barnes and Noble. And, but they all went back to the poetry because that's what she read in class and they loved it and they just, they could do it. And, and Cheryl always said, we've got, we've got them ready. We got them ready. They weren't, not any seventh grader can read the Iliad and the Odyssey in the seventh or eighth grade, but if they've been through our curriculum, we have prepared them. So in many ways, which I guess this isn't really what we're talking about here. Well, and that was the thing I wanted to just mention. I, I feel like a lot of students would come to the Iliad and the Odyssey as sort of strangers, but right. our students aren't coming to it as strangers, right? They've read the Trojan War. They've read. Yes. They, they know mythology. They know mythology. Yes. And then also they're educated in sort of culture. <laughs> they read yes. widely. And so they're going to see echoes um, just all around them. So I think most of our students, when they come to it in seventh and eighth grade, they they are, are not greeted by a sort of alien, alien themes that they've never heard of. They it's sort of there's a strange um, sort of familiarity that they probably already have uh, yes. when they get there. And they, in other ways, we've prepared them, but that's exactly what yeah. we're doing. And the history, too, that they've studied. They right. know the characters, but in but also we're reading elevated literature yeah. and we're reading it out loud. And so our students are used to reading difficult things out loud. They're reading the King James Bible. Right. From, right. And I mean, they're reading Shakespeare. They're reading yeah. Mark Twain. Well, they Twain. haven't hit There's, Shakespeare yet. Well. Or Mark Twain. Uh, no, I mean... In, Aren't they doing uh, as you like it in seventh grade? No, not anymore. Oh, we moved it up to eighth. <laughs> well, if you do this in eighth grade, you will have done that. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. We you moved are soon to hit Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Well, well now I, I, mean, I am I, to Shakespeare. I, I and say, I will I mean, say, we've, we've and, them for and that's, an, but that's another good point is the reason we moved Shakespeare up is because of the content, not because of the difficulty, mm, right. but because of the content. And it's the same thing here. There is the reason she chose Butler is because it is the gentlest, the less with the stuff. imaginative, <laughs> gentlest with the stuff. Yeah. Yes, it's um, it's just the the one that has the least amount of problematic content. <laughs> and for Shakespeare, it's not the well, we'll do that another day. We, we, yeah, we need to have the Shakespeare episode. We're going to, we're going to soon. The Bard. You could call it the Bard. Um, <laughs> we don't name these. Oh, why? Get with the program. Well, now that I'm here, can we name this one? Yeah, I think we do name <laughs> it. What are you going to name this one? Uh, the Epic? The yeah. one off the rails? <laughs> the one, the one it has to be Mitchell. I'm we're usually. to a public intellectual that you found in the office. The <laughs> 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 question is, <laughs> moving on, what are these stories actually about? I mean, you know, Tanya has said, you know, all the ways that we help our students get to the point where they can engage with these books. Yeah. But 
how do we, what, what are they about? Why are we going towards them? The, they're about the human condition. Mm-hmm. You, you don't, I mean, we don't choose books because they strike our fancy. We, we, we choose books because they are speaking universally and they teach us about ourselves. Right. I mean, the Iliad is about the anger of Achilles and, and, there, the whole question, is this anger just, is it unjust? What are the consequences of this anger? Um, you know, and that's a, that's a fascinating question, right? It's in a war context, right? I mean, remember teaching seventh grade boys and they were just thrilled with the spear going in the mouth and out the back of the head, right? Like, (laughs) you know, but then, so, but the, the main question here is Achilles anger. Then when you come to the Odyssey, it it's it's about this journey home. It's about place. It's about um, Odysseus trying to um, reunite with his family and sort of elevating again that universal need for family, for being together, um, for defending one's home, um, and all the all the temptations that pull you away from that. Right. I mean, I don't know. That's the way I like to read the Odyssey. But it, there might be more. It, it's so interesting because, because it's so, you know, it's pagan, it's before Christ, but the Achilles anger and the consequences of, of that are so relevant to just to everything to, you know, the death of Patroclus is his fault. And because he refused to fight. And so that kind of thing just leads straight to it is so it feels so Christian to me to yeah. read books like this. Odysseus even though they go home. Everyone yes, has an internal yearning for something. So else universal. To get, to get home. Yeah. Well, and then also the comparison between uh, Achilles and Hector. Yeah. Because here you have a man driven by this desire to be great. And then you have Hector who sacrifices everything for the greatness of uh, his, his, community. his community. Right. Right. And that's why uh, uh, Virgil picks up on this. Yep. And the great hero of Virgil is the man who picks up his community. He picks up his what father and son yep. and moves that community and starts the Romans. <laughs> right. And here we go. You know, and then on to the Romans. There's so, a great I mean, scene at the beginning of the Aeneid where uh, Hector appears to Aeneas and he's mm-hmm. like, beaten and battered from way, but it's, it's still like from being dragged around (laughs) and he, because he's this hero that like inspires everyone in the, in the Iliad. You never really saw it coming that the Trojan would be such a great character. And it's so interesting with the students to talk about is Achilles a hero? Mm -hmm. Because you think if you haven't read it, you know, Achilles is the hero, but is he? I mean, there's just character. Yeah. But is he the hero? hero? And this is why it's a good introduction to uh, a sort of anti-hero figure. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a, it's a, it's someone who, uh, you are not meant to totally emulate, no. right. uh, right. But yet he's the main thrust of the story. He's the main movement, right. He's, he's providing all those things, uh, which, you know, there's a lot you can be gleaned from novels, uh, stories about heroes that are not quite the fullness of what, you know, a, a true hero should be. Right. Um, and so this is, you know, it's again, it's, it's inoculating students to what they're going to read later on when they read modernist literature, which we've been talking about in the office for a while or whatever, um, you know, where they're going to see more ambiguity here. We don't have the ambiguity, but we still have a flawed hero um, to work through. Um, and that's 
a great introduction for young students. It is. So Ilya and Odyssey really come together, probably written by the same person and um, were uh, written around the same time. His name was Homer. Homer. <laughs> and, but then the Aeneid really presumes an understanding of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Paul, for the, the uninitiated, would you explain how the, the books relate to each other, those three specifically that we would all kind of universally recognize as epics and why those three specifically need to be read together? <clears throat> well, I mean, I think we've... We've alluded to, right, the Aeneid starts off with Aeneas taking his family and leaving the burning city of Troy, which is, which, um, the Iliad, both the Iliad and the Odyssey don't actually deal with the sack of Troy. That's right. You get that out of the Aeneid. It's referenced in the, uh, it's referenced in the Odyssey. Sure. But it's, I don't think it's specifically addressed. Like, it's not like this is the story of that. Um, and right. I mean, I guess we need to clarify the Iliad is the story of it's about 60 days, two months worth of fighting, uh, for Troy, the Greeks attacking Troy. The Odyssey is Odysseus, one of the Greek, uh, Kings trying to get 10 years of him trying to get home and what happens when he gets home. Um, and where, and then the Aeneid is, is there's 12 books, I think six of them is Aeneas's journey trying to find where the gods want him to set up his new, his new city. Uh, and then the last six are him fighting battles to take that land. And so um, it's sort of the reverse of the Illinois where you have fighting and then try to get home. The Aeneas, the first half is trying to find a home and then uh, battles. Yeah. And so it's kind of the flip of the Odyssey and the Iliad in that, you know, the Odyssey probably read it second. The Iliad probably read it first because in terms of the chronology of the story, that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. But then the Aeneid, he flips it. That's right. That's and, right. And the, you have to read the Aeneid before the divine comedy, right? Because Virgil's the one who wrote the Aeneid, who's leading Dante, you know, the idea of going through hell, right? There's a section in, in um, the Aeneid where Aeneas goes to the realm of the dead and that, uh, but that's not, no, book four is Dido. What book is that? I don't know, five or six. Um, I think. I think you're right. Um, where he does that. Anyway, that, that idea, and, right. And that's, that's mirroring there. Odysseus who makes the same journey in the Odyssey into the yeah, underworld. I about that. Yeah. 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 And then you also going forward, you have paradise lost where, where the Odyssean journey is Satan and he right. is going to, to the underworld to gather the troops to go back up. So I he mean, loves Milton. Yeah. I do love Paradise Lost, and he gets forgotten. But uh, <laughs> he gets forgotten. <laughs> not on this podcast. He's yeah, very whiny about it not being in our curriculum. No, I well, mean, it is hard. I mean, that's you know, a tough one. It's, it's tough. I, it, we did do it for a couple of years, but it really was too hard for hard. the students, for the high schoolers. I mean, Shane, if if I could give you some advice, I've been I've been telling people for years the book, the Count of Monte Cristo, is the best novel ever written, and I'm just hoping at some point that it goes we'll, in the curriculum. Yeah, you know. Okay, but that brings up a good question. <laughs> we we were talking about epics here. What distinguishes an epic from like a great novel, like Count Count of Monte Cristo? Oh, John tells you that. You have to watch John's thing. So you refuse to answer. <laughs> that? I mean, he literally gives you three or four things that make it an epic. So if we try to guess at those three or four things and we're wrong, that's then right. We're conflicting we with don't John. want to conflict ourselves. And there was one big word I've never heard of before. Where that that is where they go to the underworld, catabasis or Catabasis, something. Yeah, I've never heard that word before. 
Yeah, how the Greek you, word. John taught me. Oh, John is it Greek? It's a Greek word. Oh Does John goodness. say you have to have uh, descent to the dead for an epic? He says that's in epics, but it's not. But he says <sighs> Dunkirk is the modern epic, and that doesn't have a descent to the dead. So maybe it's just something that's common. But I, I bet if John was here, and maybe we should have invited him, uh, <laughs> he would argue that that scene where they're in the boat and they're captured and they're about to drown would be the would be uh, okay. He might. Yeah. However, Mitch, would you offer a, re- <laughs> a brief explanation of the difference between an epic and a novel? Because Tanya is avowed silence on this question. Well, this is, I mean, now we're getting a little bit of, uh, it's probably not the greatest idea to limit a genre to just a few, a few characteristics. My guess is that there might be some central characteristics like a descent into hell, a journey, a sort of grand scale that, so That's exactly what John those are all yeah. characteristics of a, an epic that things can sort of participate in. Right. So there are a number of novels that like war and peace <laughs> is sort of participating in, um, instead of the grand scale, right. A big, huge battles, right. Um, um, there's a sort of mythology that bubbles up from that. Um, so it's not just a story, but it is becomes a starting place for a moral philosophy, a moral narrative that's going to bubble up. And that's what Homer, the Homer eventually turns into. And maybe the, the reason why it's endured for so long is because it becomes a starting place for uh, philosophy. Right. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that novels couldn't. But it's to say that there are certain things that we've deemed as epics because they participate in those characteristics um, and they also have stood this test of time and have become the object, the starting place for greater level, higher ordered thinking about the nature of things, philosophy. Yeah, which speaks to why it's so important in our curriculum, because it has undergirds so much development and culture and philosophy and education over time. And so to be familiar with it is to give yourself reference points for everything else. Yeah, all uh, of Greek, like metaf- not maybe, uh, metaphysics, uh, a moral philosophy is built upon Homer sure. uh, from the very beginning. Um, uh, the, the obligations that Odysseus owes to Penelope to go home, it's never questioned why Odysseus needs to go home. No one ever questions that in the narrative. The reader just understands that a king and a father must by duty is obligated by the role that he plays to his wife to make it home to her and make it home to his kingdom. He owes an obligation to his people that that ought to is the starting place for Greek morality. Um, what role do, does a father, does a mother, does a child owe to those people whom they play that role to? And that's, that ultimately becomes a starting place for, um, you know, Plato, um, because the sophist, the, the sophist doesn't owe a debt to anybody. He's just trying to manipulate, um, you know, morality or laws to serve his own purposes. Right. And so Plato's going to chastise him for this. So, I mean, the uh, Homer is going to be the starting point for higher, ever higher level philosophical reasoning. That, I was going to hold on. That just sounds beautiful. But could you not just say that? Both Homer and these ideas of morality and and philosophy are springing out of a common culture. And so the Homer is not necessarily the starting point, but is more a manifestation of the culture that that esteems these things. Uh, he was just the first sense, one to put it into put a it story. In a, to a story. In one sense, you're right. But in, <clears throat> but we, we not only see the sort of transfer, like when Plato and Aristotle are commenting on Homer. And they're and they're trying to bubble up a moral philosophy from Homer. They are not only telling you what Homer thought about moral philosophy, 
but they're also providing a certain level of critique to Homer. You know, for example, um, in, in the Iliad, uh, there are a number of sort of masculine combative virtues that are made the, the most important where in a polis setting, where a city. a city state, sorry to use the English, a city state. <laughs> he just sometimes he just goes into Greek. <laughs> he just can't help himself. Yeah, I just, I just yeah, absolutely. When you're lost in the text, he just, just lapses into his native yeah. language. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I could tell that's not being appreciated, but uh, uh, but <laughs> to continue the point, um, yeah, the, there's those type of virtues that, that are meant to sort of usurp relation. Um, and put others down and and lead to the the glorification of the individual don't always play nice with the sort of community values that are needed in a city state or a polis um, as the Greeks called it. Um, so that's are you why. satisfied? I, I can be, I can <laughs> I, but be. I have a I have a question. Can I ask a question? I, I want you to bring us bring Mitch's head down a few. Notes well, I just want. So you talked about obligation. Yeah. To his wife, but he also had obligation to his country to go fight, to leave his wife. That's right. And go fight. I mean, it's like a big circle. You're just constantly obligated and following yourself around. The wise person in the Iliad and the Odyssey knows how to, uh, has the wisdom, the prudence to live well in the midst of all of those competing obligations that he faces. The other thing that... John says about an epic is that it generally takes out like a piece of the story, yep. which I had never thought about before. Yep. But then That's when it. he chose Dunkirk, I thought that definitely a piece yeah, of a the point. war. Yeah. Things starting in media rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask this question um, to you guys in terms of, I'm sorry, can I just, I just had a thought that I want to, and because it starts in the middle of the story, that's why that, that pre-work is so important for the students to be successful. Oh yes. That's I mean, you can't, you can't read the a child can't read it without having done that pre-work of reading, reading the whole story, of the Trojan war where they get that big picture so that they know where they're plopping into. But people call big books, epics without ever thinking about these other things, just right. because it's a big book that is like a journey through several generations of life or something like that. Sure. And so I've never heard something like, you know, like a Dickens book, which would be a big book mm-hmm. called an epic. What about the Count of Monte Cristo? Is that an epic? It's this man's life yeah, and I think, all the way through. I think John's point, which I think is super helpful. And I think where I was kind of getting at by talking about the difference between a novel and an epic is in some ways, these literary conventions are just ways that we create terminology to help us navigate different kinds of literature that exists. But the word epic has typically been used of these mythology in these fundamentally mythological and uh, myth foundation texts that exist. And that's why there's only a few of them. Divine comedy, right. mm-hmm. um, paradise lost, uh, Iliad Odyssey and the end. And I think what John really does well, this is a, this is now become an entire episode advertising his video is, is he elucidated what those kind of key points are that separate a now a Dickens novel from the end of course by elucidate. You mean just explained. Correct. <laughs> Thank you for the English help. Thank um, you so much. You, does he make any point to continue on the conversation about John um, about poetry versus prose? No, no. You make the point. He does not. Well, I, no, I just, it was something I just thought about the fact that the, the Odyssey, the Iliad, uh, the Divine Comedy, uh, Paradise Lost, um, they're all 
poems. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're reading the prose. We are reading the prose. And that's because we're doing it in seventh and eighth grades. Right. If we were doing it in high school, I feel sure we would be using a poetic version, translation. Like Foggles. Definitely is that right. a modern one? No. There was a modern one that I saw that came out recently within the past yeah, five years. Few, and I yeah. looked at it and oh, I no, thought, Fagles this looked is. Really Fagel, good. Yeah, Fagel, Fagels, Fagels, I don't know. I think he's German. He, well, I don't know how to actually pronounce Fagels. it. Technically. If, if Fagel or but Fagel it's not like new. let us know. It's we not will, new. We'd be very happy to know how but to pronounce it. But he did all three. He did so all three. So the question I was going to ask you guys is this. When our students read it in seventh and eighth grade, can you put it into a sentence or two or a paragraph? What do you want students to come away with when they read these books? What do you think ideally parents and educators should hope for their students to, to get when they read these books, which are difficult. And obviously, as we've talked about at length are really foundational and like really go to the heart of a lot of human experience. Usually they're not getting that totality of that experience from their reading in seventh and eighth grade. What should our students be getting from these books? You know, I, um, yeah, I, I taught these for a year at Highlands and the, I taught seventh grade boys in the Odyssey. It's very easy to keep them engaged because they were so thrilled by all the action, what was going on. And what I was really just trying to get them to do was have a positive experience of these great novels so that they'll come back and reread them later that they, but also because this is their first great book, this is their first, you know, I mean, we, it's, it's a big deal for them, right? Like they've been reading novels, but this is like their first, that's like, okay, you, you putting on your big boy pants and you're, you're getting into, it's a rite of passage. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rite of passage. You know, you're doing an adult thing. Um, and so helping them deal with it maturely helping them. Uh, but, but really like what I was really hoping was that they start to look at, while reading something this difficult, be able to get to those universal things that we're talking about, about the human condition, about, you know, what it means to be, um, a human, a human being, right? Like, and, 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 and I didn't expect them to get all of it. I expected them to, to get tastes of it, to get little bits of it. And so I would ask them to write a paragraph about, you know, what we learn about this virtue in this section or whatever, you know, it was small stuff, right? So they're learning all this content because it's content heavy. And I was asking them to just do small things to try to, you know, we were having discussions as often as we could about these deeper ideas. Um, and, you know, teaching the Aeneid to eighth grade girls and they like you hit book four with Dido and it was, they were all about that relationship, and, <laughs> you know, but then having them like helping them, think about this uh, like from, from an outside perspective of Dido ends up throwing herself on a funeral pyre. Oh, sorry. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they've had 2000 years. We've talked. <laughs> they have had 2000 years to, to find that one out. Um, you know, that's not the mark of a good relationship. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but she loves him so much. <laughs> no. You know, so, um, you know, getting, having those deeper conversations about, what it means to be human, what it means to, to, to be anger, ang- angry, to, to what it means to, you know, for your friend to die. Right. You know, and that be your fault. Right. I mean, this Achilles and Patroclus, like that's, that's huge. Right. Um, and, and just to, to get, to have them have a, a little bits and tastes of that 
so that they, when they read something that is difficult, that they're not just reading for the story and, and the entertainment of it, but thinking, what does this, what does this tell me? What's this, what's this mean for me? Good. Donna, anything to add to Paul's answer? Paul's very long answer. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, no, I, no, he's, I totally agree 100% that this is really like the first time that they've in one book. I mean, we're bringing out themes in literature throughout the grammar school, but it's all really here in these books. Every character development possibility is here. Um, infidelity and um, just the way you treat, like, as you said, obligation and the way you treat people and the consequences of, of those actions. All of that is is so richly inside these stories that are also entertaining. Mm-hmm. And the just the the prose or the poetry, whichever you're reading, I mean, it's just beautifully done. I know that whatever version translation Nick's class did, they every time somebody would die in battle, there would be this phrase that it was something like and and the mist came before his eyes. Mm-hmm. And so every time they would read that, they'd be, a, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, just things like that. And they loved, like, every time, so many times when the sword would go through the mouth and come out the other end. I mean, all of that stuff is so repetitive. Yeah. And they recognize it. It's just amazing to see young students able to do this yeah. and get and really get out of it what we want them to get. and. It's, um, oh, I had another point that didn't have anything to do with that, but I wanted to throw it Rosie in. Fingered Dawn is I wanted crazy. to throw it. Rosie oh, Fingered Dawn. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's been lost in the wine dark sea. It has. <laughs> um, yeah. Mitch, what do you have to add while she's, she's grabbing? Oh, I've not taught this book to young students and I probably have, uh, uh, the wrong expectations for what a student should get out of it. Um, but I will say, just comment on, um, having taught students who've read this at a slightly older age, um, specifically a philosophy class where, um, when students have read this at a, at, in that seventh, eighth grade range, um, and then they go on to study philosophy proper. We always start with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and so they were it's all in there because it's all in there as a starting place. Um, the Greeks thought that this was, this was the Bible for them. Right. And this is the starting point of all of their, um, uh, uh, of all of their philosophy. Um, and so p- being able to pick up the threads with those students who are slightly older, um, because they've spent time, at least they're confronted with those ideas. They understand the character. Like they've had teachers like Paul who've encouraged them. Hey, if you're in love with someone, should you throw yourself on a, on a burning pile of wood? Question mark. <laughs> you know, or just be confronted. What does love look like? Uh, you know, what, what does a, a king and what does the son who's left at home when your father's away and suitors are trying to take your mom, what does a son do? Right. So asking these really pertinent questions bubble up into great theological, uh, theological, philosophical conversations. Um, and I've definitely seen the fruit of that with students. The last question. That was it. Older students. Mm. I just wanted to say we're talking seventh, eighth grade, but and if you've missed it, it's not too late. Right. You can always do it. We're not saying you have to do it in the seventh or eighth grades. In fact, that's very young. Mm -hmm. And the older students are, the more they're going to get out of this. And that's, and I, that's right. And I mean, you made the point that you 
first read them in college. That's yes. where I first read them was college. Yes. Same. Um, you know, and so the sort of the standard for people is you read this, you know, when you're in college. Right. And any of our students that have read this in seventh and eighth grade, they should reread this in college. Yeah. Like, oh, yes. Or so as an adult parent. As an adult. That's right. But but if you're an adult and you haven't read it, read, read it. it. That's right. Read uh, it because it, it's not too late. It's yeah. never too late and it's worth it. But it, I mean, it's work. Yep. The, uh, the, the, um, at the beginning of second form, uh, I, I know second we're not here Greek. to talk, second form Greek. We're not yeah. here to talk about Greek, but, uh, in the introduction to that, I have a little quote by Aristotle from his poesis, um, his poetics. Are you going to tell us this quote in English or Greek? I'm going to do my best to translate it in my on the fly into English. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, he makes the point that Homer, above all, Malista, above all, Homer has taught the poets how to tell lies. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and because in his poesis, he's he is all the great poets all uh, it's a principle of rhetoric that you will imitate copy and copy and copy homer he oh. was the textbook he was what the, the the entire pinnacle of um when you climb mount parnassus at the top you find two copies of the the, the iliad and the odyssey right yeah. um it was the the pinnacle of greek education last question quick hitter people are struggling to help their students read these books what advice do you have for them how can you help a student navigate this book? How can you help a parent who's committed to this kind of education with navigating this obstacle? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing is again, make sure those, those books that were recommended before are read. So that they're that really start, ready. So that you really start off on a good foot. So if you're, if you haven't started off well, make sure you do that. If you haven't started at all, make sure you do that before you get there. If you have to stop and go back and read those things, go back and read those things. Um, but I would also say, you know, use our instructional use videos. videos. Yeah, they're very good. Um, I think they're very good lectures and will help. And just, I mean, when my kids were doing it, of course, they had a teacher because they were at the cottage school, but but they needed help at home. And so I just, when I got up in the morning, that was what I was reading. I was making, I had to make a list of who was on the Greek side, who was on the Trojan side. I mean, I really, it's in the study guide. Yes. It helped me a lot to make that list. So just, it's hard. I know it's hard to get it all done. And I'm, I mean, I'm a failure. When my kids got to the Aeneid, I was done. (laughs) (laughs) When they got to the divine comedy, I didn't even think about it. (laughs) Well, uh, something, let me guess, learn Greek. (laughs) Right. Right. Of course. He did tell me when he was going to be a part of this, that were we going to talk about the fact that the best way to read the Iliad and the Odyssey is in their original language. The best translation no. is the translation that Homer has provided for us. <laughs> Mitch and I actually did read a little bit of book nine. We did. Together. Book nine. Yeah. Yeah. We did translate through that and it was, uh, it was, it was exciting. It was you fun. mean you haven't read it all? In Greek? Yes. No, I haven't. Unfortunately. Oh, I've only oh, read we can it all sleep tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. Really? <laughs> well, and I just want to say to your point, how can you yeah, prepare students? Uh, you know, I never met Cheryl, but oh, I've read that she's said this one phrase a lot. We tend to overestimate what we can do in one in one year, but underestimate what you can do in five, in five mm-hmm. ten years. And that's what our curriculum is trying to do. You know, in the very early age, we uh, introduce students to Greek mythology. Um, right. And then we learn about famous men of Greece. Right. And then we read a book on uh, a small book on Greek history and we read the Trojan War. Right. So 
there's things, there's preparatory work that we've talked yes, about. Yes, we are working. Before. That's what we're working for. Right, right, right. All those young yeah. years. So of, don't underestimate, underestimate what you can do over two, three, four years with your students to prepare them for something like this. The last thing I would say is I've plugged these probably on this podcast multiple times, but I'll do it again. There is a um, Dan Stevens plays Matthew. Dobson Abbey, he dies. Oh, yes. Oh, no, a spoiler again. (laughs) But I think he died so that he could go to do his life work, which is just (laughs) audiobook versions of Alien the Odyssey that are amazing. And I would recommend them to anyone. I've listened to them each the last two years. In a British accent. It's a great British accent. His voice is money. And (laughs) they're really great. Okay. What translation does he do? It's the Fitzgerald translation. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for a parent, that would be fine because it's the same story, regardless of the translation. Mm-hmm. So, yes, do it as an audiobook when you're doing your laundry, cooking dinner. It'd be also great for kids to read the text, and then when you're in the car, and then listen, listen to it. Yes, as as a way to you know get what you missed. There's so many great characters in these books besides the people we've talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, Ajax. Um, <laughs> two Ajaxes. Two Ajaxes. Now that's confusing. Um, Diomedes. I mean, that's. I mean, that was the translation. Uh, Diomedes. Yes. I don't know. Depends on the translation. Depends. Yeah. Um, so many, so many wonderful, wonderful characters that you know. It's even just listen to that chapter again because there's there's fun there's there's great adventures of every character and then and nestor's long long speeches yep. and the kids are like oh no as nestor's Not talking nestor. again <laughs> Not nestor. that's where all the, all the wisdom is it's when nestor's talking great well i would actually venture to say this episode has been epic Oh, please. Oh, Lord. Good gracious. That was not good. You didn't use the word scrimmage, though, so I could tell oh. you what it was, but well, I told you anyway. It is a, is a scrimmage between the Trojans and the Greeks. Yeah. Read about it. I, was, oh. I, I wanted to say, actually, the Ill and the Odyssey are scrimmages for real life. Like prep work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like, think that works. No, they're like, they're like, they're like, they're, they're, they're. Okay. Um, I hate that I brought this games, up. Yeah, you started this. They're games that don't have real weight. Because you're learning about the human condition without actually having to make the mistakes that they make. That's right. On that note, that lands. thank you all for joining us. <laughs> oh, a great episode. you're welcome. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.